The following resource is from DesiringGod.org. That first song that we sung paints the picture from Revelation chapter 4 and chapter 5 of the Lamb being revealed in heaven. And in chapter 5, verse 5, the apostle John hears from one of the elders in heaven, Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah has conquered. And so this morning, as we turn to the first book of the Bible, book of Genesis, and we're going to come to the climax of the Joseph story. And in that is the climax of the whole book of Genesis. We get a glimpse into one of the reasons why Jesus is of the tribe of Judah. Have you thought about that before? Why Judah? Why is he of the tribe of Judah, not Joseph? Joseph was the favored son of his father, Jacob. And Joseph is the main focus of chapters 37 to 50, right? You can break up Genesis like this. Chapters 1 to 11, the early history. Abraham is 12 to 23. Chapters 24 to 26, Isaac. Jacob is the main focus of chapters 27 to 36. And in this last section, this is the Joseph story. We all know this as the Joseph story. Prince of Egypt and Technicolor Dreamcoat and all. Joseph's story here at the end of Genesis. Judah, of course, and Joseph are half-brothers of their father Jacob. I won't go into all the details of the four women by which he fathered those 12 brothers. Judah is Jacob's fourth son and the son of his wife Leah. Joseph is Jacob's favored son. And he is, one of, he is uh, one of only two sons by his favored wife, Rachel. And this is plainly Jacob's, Joseph's story at the end of Genesis, not Judah's. As we know from chapter 37, Judah and his brothers were jealous of Joseph. And they hated him because of his father's favor on his favorite, Joseph. And Joseph's dreams, as you know, did not help. They hated him all the more because of his dreams. He reported to seeing them and his father bowing down to him in these dreams. And the brothers came to hate Joseph so much that they sold him into slavery and they gave their father the impression that Joseph was dead. But even in slavery, God was with him. And the narrative over and over makes it clear. God was with him. God was with him. This wasn't just Joseph's skill. It wasn't just that Joseph had natural abilities that were smiled upon. God was with him in it. The providence of God at work. He worked in a man's house named Potiphar. And he was so able, with the favor of God on him, that Potiphar put him over the whole house. And then Potiphar's wife lied about Joseph. And Joseph's put in prison. And even there, God's favor remains on him. And soon he's put over the whole prison. And then, two disgraced servants of Pharaoh are put into prison. And they have dreams. And Joseph interprets the dreams. And one, as you know, the baker is hanged. And the cupbearer is restored to favor. And Joseph says, remember me. And the cupbearer forgets him. And in Genesis 41.1, this is remarkable. Genesis 41.1, after the cupbearer has forgotten about him, the narrative says, after two whole years. <laughs> that's such a small detail in the text. But here's, 
Joseph, sold into slavery at age 17, in Potiphar's house in prison now for a total of about 11 years, interprets the dreams, is about to be restored. He thinks, maybe, you know, remember me, tell Pharaoh about me, I'm I'm a righteous man here in prison. And then two more whole years he's left in prison. In this 13-year cycle of down, 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 from selling into slavery at age 13, down, 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 to Potiphar's house as a slave, to prison, until he comes back into favor 13 years and two more here at the end. Where are you in your suffering, in your pain, in this process of down, down, before God steps in to make the key turns here? So two more years in Genesis 41, 1. That leads him to interpreting Pharaoh's dreams. And then he is put as prince over all Egypt, which brings him back in context, as you know, with his brothers. And so Joseph, as we've said now several times, is the focus of chapters 37 to 50. And yet, one of the most surprising events that occurs in this Joseph story and has massive implications for the history of God's people and for the eventual king over God's people is what happens to Joseph's brother Judah. In fact, the climactic moment of the whole book of Genesis is when Judah and Joseph stand face to face at the end of chapter 44. This is the most dramatic moment. That's where we're focusing here this morning. And there's something for us to learn here about Judas. I want you to ask with me. Come with me this morning and let's see if we can look with fresh eyes to this well-known story. Maybe you know it so well from Prince of Egypt movie and Technicolor, Dreamcoat plays. Maybe it's familiar to most of us, but let's look at it from a different angle this morning. In particular, with Judah in view. So here's our outline. Let's consider three important details about Judah in this story of his brother Joseph. Number one, remember Judah's glaring flaws. Remember Judah's glaring flaws. Not only was Judah one of the ten brothers who envied and plotted against Joseph, but in fact... It was Judah who suggested they sell him into slavery. It was Judah. Look with me at chapter 37, verses 26 to 27. Genesis 37, 26 to 27. Judah said to his brothers, What profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and not let our hand be upon him, for he's our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. So, Judah does speak up and prevent his brother from being killed. That's a good thing. But why? Why does he do it? What's the motivation for it? He appeals to personal profit. He says, what profit is it if we kill our brother? Come, let us sell him. In other words, let's not only get rid of him, let's profit from getting rid of our brother. And Judah's word carries the day. The other brother's like, that's a good idea. So Judah speaks up, the brothers agree, and they sell Joseph as a slave. Chapter 37. Then chapter 38 comes along. And it is a seemingly strange aside in this Joseph story. Chapter 38 chronicles Judah's downward spiral morally, especially in relation to his daughter-in-law, Tamar. And it ends, chapter 38 ends, with Judah's admission of his wickedness and his hypocrisy. 
There seems to be rock bottom for Judah here at the end of chapter 38. And this strange aside in Genesis 38, it should tip us off that we need to pay careful attention to this person of Judah as the story of Joseph goes on. Genesis 37 to 50 is Joseph's story. And yet, Genesis 38 comes along and it turns the focus in the middle of Joseph's story to Judah. And there's at least two reasons for this. The first reason is the immediate contrast between Judah in chapter 38 and Joseph in chapter 39. In chapter 38, Judah is spiraling downward. He's not keeping his his word. He's visiting a cult prostitute. And then Joseph, in chapter 39, is flourishing in Potiphar's house. And he's exhibiting sterling character in refusing the overtures of Potiphar's wife. And so the lives of Judah and Joseph are going in two different directions. These are foils for each other. Judah's failures help, help us see the strengths and admirable characteristics of Joseph. And then there's a second reason that the two are set up like this. This is is often overlooked, I think. The second reason is to prepare us for what we are going to see about Judah when we get to chapters 43 and 44. So number one, first, remember Judah's glaring flaws. Number two, then, mark Judah's pledge of safety. Mark Judah's pledge of safety. In Genesis 42, Jacob sends his sons, minus Benjamin, the youngest, to Egypt to seek food during the time of the famine. And as we know, Joseph is now Lord over Egypt. And he recognizes his brothers, but he remains hidden to them. So he sends them home with food, But he keeps the brother Simeon, saying, I'm going to keep Simeon until you come back with Benjamin. Joseph asks him questions about their family. He knows they have another brother. He wants to make sure they're not liars, he says. So I'm going to keep Simeon. You go back with your food. You come back with Benjamin. And then I'll release Simeon. And when the brothers get home to Jacob, he's distraught. He's already lost his favorite son Joseph, he thinks. He wants to preserve Benjamin Simeon is now in prison. Simeon's lost as well. He don't want to lose Benjamin by sending him down to Egypt. He says, no, we're not going back there. I'm not going to lose Benjamin. I'm not sending Benjamin down. But the supply of food gets lower and lower every day. And then Judah is going to step forward in a key moment and offer a way forward at this impasse. But before he does so, Reuben tries it. Reuben's the oldest brother. And now there's going to be a comparison between Judah and Reuben. And this time, instead of the comparison being negative for Judah, positive for Joseph, it's negative for Reuben, and it's going to be positive for Judah. So Reuben says, this is chapter 42, verse 37. Reuben asks his father Jacob to send Benjamin so the family can get more food. And Reuben says, as a pledge, Jacob, you can kill my two sons if I don't bring uh, Benjamin back. That's a terrible idea. Joseph must have been, uh, Jacob must have been thinking, if a son is lost, then you're going to kill two grandsons? This is, this is madness. I can't trust Reuben with Benjamin. Reuben is not trustworthy. No, <laughs> Benjamin's not going. We'll stay here. We'll keep starving here. But the food keeps going away, going away. 
family's going to starve. And so Judah steps forward, and he offers a different approach. Look, look with me at chapter 43, verses 8 and 9. Go there with me. This is a very important text in the sequence of chapters 37 to 50. Chapter 43, verses 8 to 9. Judah steps forward. He says to Israel, Jacob, his father, Send the boy with me, and we will arise and go, that we may live and not die, both we and you and also our little ones. Verse 9. I will be a pledge of his safety. From my hand you shall require him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, let me bear the blame forever. Reuben's idea was horrible and selfish. But Judah's offering is honorable and it's self-sacrificial. I will be a pledge of his safety, Judah says. I will bear the blame for him. And I, I can't help but wonder if in that, if Jacob hears the voice of his righteous mother, Rebecca, when she came to him and said, put on hairy arms, go into your father Isaac, receive the blessing that God has said the older will serve the younger in obedience to God's voice. And Isaac, who seems to want to give it to his oldest son, let's go in. And if you're caught, she says to him, let your curse be on me, my son. She's going to sacrifice herself. She, she wants to bear that curse if the plan doesn't work with Isaac. Can't, I, just, I wonder if Jacob hears that, if he hears that kind of self-sacrificial attitude in the words of Judah. And so Jacob agrees, and he entrusts Benjamin to Judah to go back down to Egypt. And so the brothers return to Egypt, and they dine in Joseph's house. And there, Benjamin receives five times the portions of the older brothers. And then Joseph sends him off with more food. However, the brothers are then caught from behind by an Egyptian saying that someone has stolen Joseph's silver cup. The cup planted by Joseph is found, horror of horrors, in Benjamin's pack. And that condemns him to return to Egypt as a slave. And so the brothers come back. Two important questions here about this whole strange set of circumstances. First, why does Joseph give Benjamin five times the portions of his older brothers? And second, why hide the silver cup in Benjamin's pack? And if we're following the story closely, I, I think these two details stick out as perhaps the most confusing, at least for modern readers. And this is what we love to do at Desiring God. We love to pay attention to details in the text. And we love to ask why, why? Because often the parts of the Bible that seem most confusing at first are the parts that we need the most. And the questions that require the hardest thinking often lead us to the answers that are most rewarding. I think the answer to both of these questions has to do with Joseph setting up a test for his brothers. He's testing them. He wants to see what they're made of. Benjamin, the only other son of Rachel, is now his father's favorite in Joseph's absence. 
And now Benjamin is receiving favored treatment, just like Joseph received favored treatment from his father. Benjamin's receiving favored treatment in Egypt. So Joseph's question is, will the brothers envy Benjamin and hate him and throw him under the bus just like they did with Joseph? And since silver cups like this were used in Egypt and other places in the ancient world for divination, for telling omens and looking into the future, might the brothers think that Benjamin is trying to set himself up as a dreamer? As someone who looks into the future, like his brother Joseph. So what's happening is Joseph is setting up Benjamin as a new kind of Joseph to see how the brothers will respond to him. Will they abandon Benjamin as they did with Joseph 22 years before? There's another small but important detail here in chapter 44, verse 14. Look there, 44, 14. When Judah and his brothers returned. This is, this is a little bit of foreshadowing. Now, the reference to the brothers is Judah and his brothers. It's like Judah has become the lead singer of the band. Judah and his brothers now are coming back to Egypt to face Joseph. And Judah is about to emerge as the key brother as he steps forward then to give the longest speech in the book of Genesis. Chapter 44, verses 18 to 34. It's not an especially long speech, but it's the longest speech in the book of Genesis. And this is the most significant moment. This is the climactic moment in the book of Genesis. Look in particular at chapter 44, verses 32 to 33. For our purposes here this morning, focusing on Judah, verses 32 and 33 are the key part of Judah's speech here before Joseph. Judah says to Joseph, for your servant, I, he's talking about himself, I became a pledge of safety for the boy to my father, saying, if I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father all my life. Now, therefore, please let your servant remain Instead of the boy, please let me remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord and let the boy go back with his brothers. So Judah's speech here before Joseph and his readiness to sacrifice himself and put himself into slavery and not abandon abandon Benjamin into slavery. It breaks the spell, so to speak, with Joseph. This is when we have the big reveal This is chapter 45, verse one. Should be right there. Chapter 45, verse 1. Then Joseph could not control himself before all who stood before him. He cried, make everyone go out from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. This is one of the most dramatic and emotional moments in all of Scripture. Along with when Jacob finds out that Joseph's still alive. And then when Joseph and Jacob meet up, fall on each other's necks. And weep and kiss. Joseph says to his brothers, I am Joseph. And what's the brother's response? They're terrified. Because Joseph is Lord is not good news for those who have sinned so grievously against him. Joseph now, as the Lord of all Egypt, has the power to crush his brothers. 
But instead, he comforts them. And how does he do it? He points to the providence of God. Five times he points to God's work in these horrific, evil, wicked circumstances of the brothers selling their own brother into slavery. Look at chapter 45, verses 4 to 9. It says God's purposeful sovereignty and what he was doing in the brothers treating with such wickedness their brother. Chapter 45, verses, five, verses 4 to 9. I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me ahead to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve your remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. It was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Hurry and go up to my father and say to him, Thus says your son Joseph, God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Joseph is amazingly God-centered in his thinking about the circumstances, wicked as they were, that led to his coming to Egypt. God sent me here to preserve life. God sent me. He made me a father to Pharaoh. God has made me Lord of all Egypt. It was not you but God who sent me here. Which, I hope you all know as ministry partners of Desiring God, will be captured so directly and wonderfully and is the best one-sentence summary of the whole book of Genesis in chapter 50, verse 20, when Joseph says to his brothers, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. Think how it might change us when we're victimized, like Joseph, to see God's work despite and through others' sins against us. God's purposeful sovereignty in in Joseph's ill treatment doesn't mean that the brothers' actions weren't evil. They were evil. The brothers are accountable. You meant evil against me, Joseph says. And even in this evil, often it seems especially in evil, God shows himself to be in full and absolute and providential control. He is sovereign over and in every detail. Human sin and evil do not stymie his purposes. But wonder upon wonder, he takes the very acts and intentions of evil man and not just Despite them, but precisely because of them, he brings about his good and saving purposes for his people. And he did this so plainly and powerful in the death of his son, did he not? So Joseph comforts his distressed brothers by assuring him, by assuring them that he sees what God was doing for good when they intended evil. And because of his God-centeredness, he is able to genuinely forgive his brothers for their evil intentions and acts against him. And so Judah stepping forward, 
Judah offering himself in Benjamin's place passes the test that Joseph set up. Judah's pledge of safety and his readiness to bear Benjamin's blame demonstrates love rather than envy and shows Joseph that Judah at least has changed. For one, Judah is not the same man he was 22 years before. This is not the same Judah as chapters 37 and 38. Given the chance to dispense with Benjamin in the ways that the brothers did with Joseph, Judah offers himself as the substitute. And this leads then to his legacy. Point number three. So number one, remember Judah's glaring flaws. Number two, mark his pledge of safety. And then third and finally, marvel at Judah's stunning legacy. Marvel at Judah's stunning legacy. When Jacob comes to the end of his life and he blesses his 12 sons in Genesis chapter 49, he says that the kingship in the nation of Israel will belong to Judah. Chapter 49, verse 10. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be all the obedience of the peoples. This would not have been Judah's lot after chapter 38. But for the changed life. And but for the pledge of safety. And so as Judah became a pledge of safety for his younger brother Benjamin, so the king in Israel, the king in God's people, should be a pledge of safety for his brothers and sisters. This is Judah's legacy. This is what Judah should be remembered for. Not Genesis 37 and 38. That was old Judah. This is a new Judah that emerges in chapters 43 and 44. And this is the kind of man that God means to be in leadership over the people in his kingdom. Just as Judah came to offer himself to free his brother rather than enslave him, so God means for the leaders of his people to embrace the cost, embrace the inconvenience, embrace the loss of personal comfort and private joy for the greater joy of meeting the needs of those entrusted to our care. God means for those who lead his people, whether as pastors or husbands or fathers or mothers or influential figures, to not use the people entrusted to our care, to not domineer over those entrusted to our care, but to lift others up And to serve them. To sacrifice for others rather than be selfish. To use our God-given strength and energy and resources and finances and influence to help others rather than hurt them. This is the legacy of Judah. Not exploiting others but sacrificing for them. Not pushing others down but lifting them up. Not using power to hurt others but to help others. This is the kind of man that God wants to be king of his people and leaders in society and pastors in churches and husbands in marriages and fathers and mothers in homes. And this is the apostle Peter's vision of what leaders should be like in the church. And we see that in 1 Peter chapter 5. 
Let me read for you 1 Peter 5, verses 2 and 3. Peter addresses, in particular in chapter 5, directly addresses the elders in the churches of the dispersion. And he gets to the heart. He has, there's three vital contrasts here. Not this, but this. He wants to accent what it is. So he says what it's not and says what it is in his vision of Christian leadership. 1 Peter 5, verses 2 and 3. Shepherd the flock of God, fellow elders. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight. First, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you. Number two, not for shameful gain, but eagerly. And third contrast, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. God wants the self-offering, the self-giving of his people to be willingly. Not begrudging. Eager. Not dutiful. And God has always wanted the self-giving and self-sacrificing of his people, especially those in leadership, to be willing. Because God is most glorified in his people's acts of sacrificial love when we are most willing and eager and happy and joyful in him in those sacrificial acts of love. The next thing that Peter says after the contrast of not under compulsion but willingly is an amazing phrase. He says, as God would have you. This is, this is why, among dozens of other reasons, why I love partnering with and working for the ministry of Desiring God. God, the way that God would have it, this is how God does it. This, literally, this is according to God. Kata theon, according to God. Willing service. Willing living. Willing sacrifice. Not under compulsion, but eagerly, gladly, happily, is how God would have it. That's his design. That's how he wants it. And willingness, gladness, eagerness is not only what he wants from us, but what he himself is. God wants us to live and act and serve and lead willingly, gladly, joyfully, happily, because God himself lives and acts and leads and serves happily, gladly, willingly, eagerly. And we don't have... In the broad sweep of this Genesis narrative, we don't have details of the heart dynamics of all that went on for Judah. But we do have plenty in the rest of the scriptures about what it's like for us. The legacy of Judah, who puts himself at risk to protect others, is not a legacy that flows from mere duty. Rather, Changed life flows from changed joy. Living the legacy of Judah, being a pledge of safety for others, is not a dour existence. But it is one that proceeds from and refills our reservoirs of profound, unshakable joy in God. 
But the legacy of Judah is not simply a call for us to be pledges of safety for others. Mark this. It's not just a call for us. And this is what makes new joy possible in part. The reason we can have hope despite our glaring flaws and the reason that we can step forward in joy to gladly sacrifice ourselves for others is because we have a pledge of safety for us. There is only one king and only one man who is the perfect embodiment of Judah's legacy. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah has conquered. Brothers and sisters, as we close this morning, picture with me Jesus himself turning to his father in eternity past and saying this about us, about you. I will be a pledge of their safety. Father, I will not come back without them. I will bear the blame for them. And Jesus came and he offered himself in our place as our substitute. And what enables us to be the kind of people who become pledges of safety for others is first and foremost knowing the joy of having Jesus, who is our pledge of safety, seated at God's right hand, interceding for us as our certain, sure pledge of safety before the Father. And when life and leadership get hard, which they will, they do, and when we feel weak, which we will, and when it feels like it's more than we can bear, which will happen to us often, we have a lion to lean on. The lion of the tribe of Judah who has conquered He will hold us fast. He will keep us safe. He will bring us home to his father and provide the power we need to say, not I, but Christ through me in what he calls us to. Let's close in prayer. So Father in heaven, we thank you first and foremost for Jesus as the legacy of Judah. That Jesus has been a pledge of our safety at great cost to himself, even to the point of death, death on a cross. Jesus gave himself to bear the blame for us. And then, Father, as those who love him, as those who marvel at him, as those who worship him, we want the joy of echoing that in our lives. We want to be the kind of people, imperfect as we are, to echo that love of Christ for others. We want to be a pledge of safety to those whom you would entrust to us. So Father, grant us your grace in our giving of time, energy, resources, finances, energy. Father, we want to do so in such a way that we lean on this lion for power and that he supplies the strength we need. You get the glory. And in the end we say... It was not I, but it was Christ in me who saved me and gave me the power to fulfill the calling. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this resource from DesiringGod.org. If you found it helpful, we encourage you to enjoy and share from thousands of resources on our site, including books, sermons, articles, and more, available free of charge.
DesiringGod.org exists to help you treasure Jesus more than anything else because God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him.